The year that this week's album was released, YouTube was launched, and at last, cat ladies, model trained basement dwellers, and flat earth conspiracy nuts had a place to congregate and spread their gospel. I'll let you decide how that's working out. The band responsible for this week's album is related by marriage to Goop, a lifestyle brand known for the same kind of pseudoscience that the aforementioned flat earthers discuss in basements not already occupied by Lionel boxes and cans of cat food. This week's album featured artwork inspired by an obscure French telegraph code that I don't really understand, so I'll stop talking about it now. Have you guessed it yet? The year was 2005, the band is Coldplay, and the album is X and Y. Today on Two Dudes and Tunes. You're listening to Two Dudes and Tunes, the podcast where two dudes wax eloquent ad nauseum about their favorite albums. I'm the dude named Chris. A dude named Wood is my counterpart in crime. Wood, what's happening? Hey, man, how's it going? I'm doing pretty great. Yep, doing good. Uh, just working, working for the weekend. Yeah. It's, it's, it's steady work. I would say it's good work if you can get it, but it's not good work. So <laughs> it's just work. Nice, man. Yeah, it's pretty good to uh, press the pause button on life uh, and turn away from work a little bit and get to talk about music with you. Yeah, man, I, this is this is becoming very quickly the highlight of my week. I'm usually itching to do something uh, that isn't the old grind. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the grind, I uh, I have a bunch of travel coming up for work over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, I'll be out of town a lot uh, on Thursday nights when we generally record these episodes. So I've been kind of scrambling to get my setup made mobile so that we can uh, continue this show on the road. It's going to be interesting for sure. Oh, you're going to get to do some hotel casts. That'll yes. be fun. Yes. I feel like, you know, a traveling band now all of a sudden, you know, recording in the hotel room. Are you going to do the uh, John Roderick thing and sit in the bathtub while you record? Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. Probably not. uh, I'm terrified of electricity. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it would be really sad to have to do an in memoriam episode for episode five. Especially since I control all the podcast feeds. That'd be a problem. Yeah, it would wind up being like an audio recording of me using the recorder on my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So uh, one thing I was thinking about, you know, we were talking off pod uh, at the end of the episode after we were done recording last weekend uh, about our list of albums. And I had told you that I had thought of a few others that I wanted to add to the list. And we kind of decided we were going to let it be a living list and we could add to it and remove from it a little bit. Uh, whereas originally we had talked about just having a, a fixed list. And because of that, I spent most of my week listening to old music from when we were younger. And uh, now I think we've got a bunch more uh, diversified uh, selections to, to hit randomize on kind of moving forward. Oh, that sounds good. I'm excited. I need to put some stuff on the list then, too. I need to sit down and uh, maybe put some stuff on that I I cut out of being worried that I had way too much on there. Yeah, I figure figure they're all all worth talking about, so we'd have a good time with it either way. So nothing that I ever thought was boring on there, that's for sure. Uh, Speaking of something that is not boring, uh, this week I found myself listening to an, an older album that I really enjoyed uh, by a guy named Austin Hanks named Alabastard. Uh, <laughs> he's very easygoing, kind of outlaw country, and uh, just a lot of fun to listen to. And the name of the album is just perfect. So uh, Yeah, that is fantastic, Alabastard. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's not on the list yet because it's a really short album and it's kind of hard to to justify talking about it for an hour when it only runs for like 30 minutes, but it's fun. 
So. Yeah. But what you listening to these days? Man, so I I gave a listen to that Paul Cawthon album that mm-hmm. uh, you were talking about, and I really enjoyed it. Um, such a great album, Room 41. That, that dude has sass for days. Yeah, it well, was and, so funny. And his orchestration of his music, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but the way he has arranged his music and mm-hmm. layered in his his band with him just is perfect for the story he's telling so i have so much fun with him yeah the his arrangements on that album are really good and then like genre wise he branches out which is a lot of fun there are some funk elements on that album there's like even a little bit of hip-hop there's some like electronic elements it's i was thoroughly i was thoroughly impressed i'm gonna have to listen to it again course uh texting with you it became very obvious we both realized that his one true passion in life is cocaine cocaine is a hell of a drug yeah (laughs) (laughs) um following the footsteps of those who came before him no doubt uh yeah i he i think i texted you that uh we might need to stage an intervention for him as much as he sings about it it, i mean who knows it might be a his like Maybe, uh, maybe his life doesn't imitate his art. Yeah, it's just a, a, a put on. He just goes home, puts on a smoking jacket and his slippers and reads the paper. I don't know. Either way, but, his music is great. So Yeah, yeah. That was a lot of fun. What else you got? Yeah, not, not much. Not much, really. Um, we went, my wife and I uh, were invited by a couple of friends of ours to go to the Wolferth Farm, Farmer's Market out here um and it would have it would have been more fun if it hadn't been so cold (laughs) it's been kind of like super chilly and the market opens at 10 a.m because it's a farmer's market so uh but it was real fun we got some cajun food from this cantankerous old louisiana guy who was running a stand out there and um his wife was like a super posh british lady who baked (laughs) like British pastries. So it was, it (laughs) was really good. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Other than that, not much. Did you Um, ask her to, to tell, to yell at you, you can't have your pudding if you don't finish your meat. (laughs) No, I should have. I feel like that dude's Scottish though. And this lady (laughs) was, she would have given me the same Island. We're cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're all the same. They all drive on the wrong side of the road. It doesn't matter. All right, well, before we get started with today's album, I just wanted to drop a friendly reminder. If you like what you're hearing, uh, please go ahead and leave a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, We would love to hear your feedback, and who knows, we might be able to use your feedback for a segment down the line, so uh, feel free to holler at us. Yeah, and if you'd like to contact us about anything we've said on the podcast, Please send us a message at two dudes and tunes at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. You can also follow us on our new Instagram at two dudes and tunes, all spelled out as well. We'd love to interact with you. All right, Chris, let's talk about X and Y by Coldplay. June 6, 2005, this came out. Seems like, uh, seems like yesterday, but 16 years ago now. Yeah, man, that kind of kind of blew my mind, you know, doing some reading about this album. I read an article written in 2014 that was kind of a retrospective about it. And they mentioned that the album kind of landed in a post 9-11 atmosphere that was full of a lot of the same feelings of insecurity and, you know, pessimism and sadness. Mm hmm. And I realized, like, yeah, it had only been, what, like three, no, four years, right? Yeah, really, really, it had only been about three and a half years from 9-11 to when this was released. It's crazy to think how long ago both those things were, 9-11 and then this. Um, But, yeah, this album was huge. Like played, I'm sure you remember because it's mm-hmm. kind of an it was album. The that, only thing on the radio for yeah, it seemed like years. Oh man, it's crazy! It sold 8.3 million units in the U.S., making it a top-selling 
the, like the top selling album that year. It was the single record that mm. sold the most copies. Um, it was their first album to top the charts, uh, which is crazy to me because I remember even before that, um, Clocks was like the big deal. And before X and Y was on the radio, uh, the tune Clocks was like, that was what was playing ad nauseum. Well, I feel all, like all over the place. I feel like their earlier albums, and we can get into this when we start talking about this album, but the first two albums that Coldplay released were really kind of a slow burn. Their their popularity grew over time as it did, mm-hmm. they developed a following. Whereas yeah. this one, the powder keg was primed and ready to explode on them. And it ended up going triple platinum because of that. Um, regardless of what you think about it, like you said, it was a massive success. Yeah, it was just, it was huge. And it's funny to read about it because, of course, like, I knew it was big, but getting numbers on that really makes you think, like, man, they really did just kind of take over the world well, I think, time anyway. Yeah, and I think as I've gotten older, too, I've become more receptive to the scale of numbers. So if you'd told me in 2005 that, hey, this thing's moved 8.3 million copies, I'd have been like, cool, whatever. You know, that's that's a lot. That's a big number. But now... I kind of have a little bit more perspective on what 8.3 million is. And it's like, Oh wow, this was a big deal for them. Yeah, it really was. I remember, um, you know, watching fuse the channel fuse on like Mm -hmm. cable or whatever. And they would play music videos from this album all the time. You know, they would play like the same three or four videos all the time. And this was one of them. The, the videos from this album were well, all over the place. One of the notes in the show notes talks about the impact that this, uh, this album had on Christian music and music in general, really, too. And I think it's partially because this, this album was everywhere. The music videos were on everything. They were played on. Snippets of these videos were played as TV commercials. Every fundraiser, every nonprofit was doing something... Coldplay inspired. Uh, oh man, what what are some of yeah. your thoughts on that? The big thing that Coldplay gets criticized for a lot is being really kind of bland, inoffensive music. So beautiful yet so mm-hmm. neutral. Um, and <laughs> so it kind of makes sense that the like worship music scene would would gravitate towards it. I don't want to be like super derogatory, but having played worship music pretty much since I could play guitar, like in one sense for me personally, it was helpful because I always grew up wanting to play like blues and rock and stuff. And so I didn't really have, I didn't like worship music and I still pretty much don't, but this album specifically was, something that was kind of a touchstone for me that I could go like, okay, well I like this and this seems to be acceptable. Mm -hmm. So I'll try and do this. But I, I think, uh, I think that that is what made it so easy for producers in the Christian music scene to latch onto it was that it was really marketable, super palatable and inoffensive and, I, I don't know. It's on a list of our favorite bands. I feel like all we've done is kind of slag this album off so far. Um, well, and so I think <laughs> one of the things, too, to think about is when you think about, and this isn't a slight at Chris Martin or any of the other you know people involved with Coldplay from the production staff to the rest of the band or whatever, but it's a very easy-to-reproduce sound. You know, churches have entire racks full of effects equipment and can layer on more reverb than, you know, could be dreamed of. And so when you've got a bunch of musicians who are doing something because they love it, but maybe aren't necessarily the most talented, it's easy to reproduce a sound that you could hear on the radio Mm -hmm. and sound Mm -hmm. passable at it. So that may be another kind of point for it. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting, too. There are really specific moments. I really wish I had sat down and figured out the songs. But there's a song that we have played at my church that has a keyboard section 
like a keyboard break that sounds exactly like part of the bridge from one of the songs off of this album. And uh, I pointed it out to the guy who was the worship leader uh, at the time, and he kind of chuckled uncomfortably. He was like, yeah, I don't know, man. (laughs) You're imagining things, kid. No, I, I, I think... I... I think he was just a little like chagrin, but like, yep, <laughs> this happens. Here we are lot. again. Yep, doing it again. They're the same picture. And something I didn't get to mention, I think I texted you about it, but I didn't get to mention on the pod last week was that um, the intro of the Michael Jackson tune, Come Into Me, wound up being ripped off um, note for note in a different song that I have also had to play. <laughs> so I, I, I'm learning now that this happens quite a bit. Yeah. Well, and while we're on the topic of last week's uh, Dangerous album, uh, when we hit the randomizer and we're told that we were doing this this album, X and Y, uh, you made a joke about how uh, uh, we were... Uh, moving on to dessert that, you know, this album was, you know, just pure dessert. And so uh, my wife, Tiffany, and I were driving in the car the other day, and uh, I have a habit of listening to music on as many different platforms as I can. So earbuds Mm -hmm. in the car, on my stereo monitors, in some really high fidelity um, studio monitors that I have in my office, and just trying to get a good feel for what the album sounds like on different devices. So we're driving down the road and I've got this album on and I told her, yeah, Chris described this album as dessert. And Tiffany said, well, if this album is dessert, I need a vegetable. <laughs> that's amazing. So I thought it was really oh, funny. Man, so that's uh, good. So uh. kind of tying a bow on last week being a real, you know, thought provoking kind of hard album to get through on so many levels and this one being dessert and her wanting a vegetable just made me laugh pretty hard. That is so funny. It sounds to me like dangerous was like grilled asparagus wrapped in bacon. Mm-hmm. And I guess now we're breaking into like a month's old bag of chips, Ahoy cookies. <laughs> Both have a place and a time. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, uh, it's all the time for me. And, uh, stale cookies i have no megan uh she didn't rag on me but she points out frequently that i i don't i don't have any taste i'll eat whatever (laughs) i can attest to that i remember when you lived in that apartment yikes the the standard of living has gone up significantly since i've been married i'm sure that's the case for like all men everywhere oh yeah definitely yeah totally Hey, so uh, what's this note about space rock you have here in the show, Doc? Oh, yeah. So it's kind of funny. Wikipedia calls this space rock. And that is really, it's part of the reason I, I, I mean, we've spent a lot of time trashing it so far. And we're not even that far in the podcast. But I really do love the production of this record. Like the sounds are really big. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of before, well, like a lot of shoegaze bands from like late 80s and early 90s had been using a lot of reverb, right? Like reverb is not anything new, but this was my first exposure to sounds like this. And the connection for me is kind of funny. Um, this album came out the summer before my junior year of high school. And every summer, we would wind up taking a trip to Cloudcroft, New Mexico to spend time with my mom's side of the family uh, because her parents owned a cabin out in Cloudcroft. Mm-hmm. And it is it is gorgeous out there. It's a mountain town, so there are trees everywhere. Um, and there's an observatory. I'm not sure if it's in Cloudcroft or it's outside of it, but... There was an observatory that we would go visit and something about like kind of this observatory where people were taking pictures of space and like 
the mountains and kind of the remoteness and the big sounds of this album, something about it just kind of stuck with me. And so I've always just kind of thought like, it's kind of funny that it's called space rock because I always just sort of associated it with the grandness of outer space and the planets and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of, that's why it's on the list is because I do genuinely like it. Um, even if it's it's not great. But before we kind of get into how we feel about, um, I just wanted to gab about the production of it because it's kind of interesting. Um, they worked on this album for 16 months. Yeah. Um, the producer, uh, whose name is Ken Nelson, him and Chris Martin, the lead singer and keyboard player, and... Um, I believe his name is Jeff Buckland, um, their lead guitarist. They all sat down and started writing songs. Um, but what happened was, is they wrote these songs and recorded a batch of them. And they weren't satisfied with it. And so they sat down and redid a bunch of them. And they went a bunch of different directions with it. They tried to be very radio friendly and it wound up being too boring for them. And then they tried to go kind of swing hard in the other direction and do like really experimental electronic stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it didn't work for them. And so it took them 16 months to get to the point where they got, got it to where they want it. Um, you know, they had a ton of pressure on them that was really self-inflicted because they had won Grammys with their other two albums, which I didn't even know. I always heard, you know, they're a Grammy award-winning band, but A Rush of Blood to the Head won a couple of Grammys. I think Parachutes won a Grammy. Like, So they had a lot of pressure on them to make this something that they wanted it to be. Yeah, and, you know, I think they became kind of victims of their own success to a certain extent with this album because of that pressure they were putting on themselves. You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the the third time's the charm, but in music, that third album is the one that generally proves whether you've got what it takes to be great or you're just going to be another okay band long term. And so they really built that up in their heads a lot. And that kind of speaks to 16 months trying to write and produce this thing and get it out there and really having, you know, two other drafts of this album that they completely threw away and started over from. Uh, That really had to get in their head a little bit. Yeah, there's a kind of funny quote uh, from an entertainment uh, article uh, Chris Martin says, yeah, you can't win on your third album. You're effed. I knew we should have stopped or someone should have shot me. I think that's the best thing that could happen to us. If someone shot me in the head, death is guaranteed to make your last work seem good. Um, which is so funny to me because this album, you know, whether you can argue whether it's good or bad, um, but Boy, it was successful. I I think in a way, their work obviously paid off. You know, they they paved the way for all their future successes with this album. You know, even if their subsequent stuff hasn't been as good. Well, and I would argue that I think a lot of their subsequent stuff has been better than this. But this served as a good wake-up call to them in a lot of ways. There are some good songs on this album I would argue that it's probably not a great album per se. Um, I've got some hangups that we can talk about a little bit later uh, with it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they saw what they did with this album and saw what worked and what didn't work. And it made them better as a whole um, for some of the albums that came out in the years after this. And so in that case, you know, it's a huge success commercially and, it made them a better band. It made them a stronger group in the long run. It's, it's a good album because of those things. Yeah. It's interesting to me that you like the albums 
that came after this because I've never I've tried to get into them like Vita La Vida is an album that Megan and I listened to a lot um, when we first got married because there were songs on it that we really liked but I've tried to listen to the stuff that came after it and like their most recent album they kind of returned to some more of the guitar based drums oriented stuff um, but for me this is like weirdly enough, this is kind of their high point as as frustrating as some of the aspects of this song of this album are like uh, for me, it doesn't get better than this album and I don't, I don't know if that maybe speaks to Coldplay's like quality or lack thereof as a band, but I don't know i I really like it it had a uh, it had a ton of singles on it you know I was impressed last week when you told me how many of the singles off of or how many of the tracks off of dangerous wind up being singles and i'm kind of wondering if maybe i was i just don't know anything about singles because there were one two three four five six out of what like 11 tracks Mm -hmm. so over half um and i think what we'll find if we kind of keep this trend up of looking at the singles what we will find is most albums will only have one or two singles um yeah we've just happened to be picking albums that two weeks in a row have been critical successes and if you look at when singles were released for both those albums for dangerous i believe that was spread out over three or four years and here you know we're looking at singles from 2005 2006 and 2007 so these were a pretty slow burn on this album too, where they kept coming out with a single. When one fell off the charts, they dropped another one. Yeah, I kind of wonder if that is a a studio or not a studio, but like a label machination. You know, if they go like, "Oh, we've got to got to keep making money off of this. Let's just put another well, one out now that everybody's forgotten." Well, and I, maybe I didn't do enough research. I'll be the first to admit maybe I'm the one who failed here, but it doesn't look like they toured on this album at all. Whereas with Dangerous, he was in the middle of touring it that entire three years that they were releasing singles. So they were trying to keep Michael Jackson front and center. This album seems like it came out and kind of lived in a vacuum until they went on tour three years later. No, I, I did a little bit of reading about the tour, but there wasn't a ton. I, I think it was just your standard fare, like big, big ticket tour. They released a, uh, they released a, a version of this album that had some live tracks, but it was like the Latin. It was like for the Latin American market. I don't think that, I don't think there was anything super remarkable about it. I think they just compiled some stuff to like advertise in a different air, like a different region. Um, because this was a big tour, but there was, you know, it's, you can't top being Michael Jackson popping out of a, a toaster underneath the stage and <laughs> dancing around and that nobody's as, as big as Michael Jackson. So I just didn't, I didn't write it down cause I figured, eh, that's cool. No, I just, it's one of those things that when I see singles spread out that far, I kind of wonder, what was the band doing to them? They, what were they trying to do to keep them in the limelight a little bit more? So, yeah, they were probably, um, I wonder if at this point they were doing like electronic, you think they were doing like downloads? Cause I know sometimes like Starbucks used to do that thing where you could like download whatever well, song you were hearing or something like that. It's funny. You mentioned that I had a story written down in my notebook here that I wanted to tell you. I remember downloading this album And it was probably the second or maybe third album I downloaded from a defunct website in 2005. You and I were rebels because I mentioned LimeWire in one of our episodes. (laughs) There you go. Well, uh, you wouldn't download a song, kids, so don't do it. (laughs) That's got to be the best part I've ever seen. (laughs) Um, But I remember having this album in its entirety on uh, my iPod, my 16 gigabyte iPod. And uh, so, yeah, definitely downloads were a thing because this album, I have never owned a physical copy of, but I did have it on my iPod uh, when I was in high school. 
Oh, see, the, the physical copy of this album is what drew me to it because I don't think, I mean, obviously I'd heard, you know, songs like Yellow and Clocks on the radio, but when I discovered this album, uh, we were on our way to Cloudcroft, like I was saying, and we stopped at some godforsaken Walmart between San Antonio and Cloudcroft. Um, and what caught me was the album art. The album uh, art is amazing. It's really good. And even like even the texture of the album, I can still remember the uh, it was very not. It wasn't glossy. It was like kind of a matte finish. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the, the booklet inside was really well put together. It had some really cool pictures of the band sitting around and recording the album. It was a really neat piece of physical media. But I got rid of most of my CDs, I want to say, like, two or three years ago. So I, who knows? It's in a Goodwill somewhere <laughs> long gone. Yeah, it sometimes happens that way. So, uh, you know, a lot of music came out in 2005. Uh, did you happen to look at what else came out in 05 that this was competing against and top of the dog pile? Yeah, it's kind of a weird, 2005 was kind of a weird year for rock in general. Not that rock wasn't happening because there was a lot of emo, a lot of punk and hardcore stuff coming out. Um, But as far as like Billboard or something like that is concerned, I looked up the top five albums that were like in their end of year list for 2005. So the massacre by 50 cent encore by Eminem American idiot by green day, the emancipation of Mimi by Beyonce and breakaway by Kelly Clarkson. And so like none of those are on our list folks. Don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and you know, some of those are probably good albums, but what I took away from it was that there was a lot of stuff at the top that, was just not not like rock like a lot of people love american idiot i'm not really one of those people but you know it's interesting i think rock was kind of in a weird place the only other stuff that i recognized in the like top 20 i guess would be uh u2's how to dismantle an atomic bomb and hot fuss by the killers which Mm -hmm. is an album that i really like um but it, it I don't know. It kind of made sense to me in a weird way that X and Y was like the big air quotes rock record. Yeah. Especially when you see those, those names listed. And I I don't know if this is just a fabrication of my imagination, but I remember who knows who it was, probably somebody like Dave Grohl or somebody, you know, complaining about how like, ugh. Coldplay is like what the kids consider rock these days. <laughs> That's something Dave Grohl would totally say. I've never said anything bad about Chris Martin. Yeah, as a throwaway yeah. comment as he was walking out of somewhere. Um, I don't know. It, do you remember the album that you two like pushed onto everybody's iPhones a it's, few years ago? It's still on my work iPhone. I can't figure out how to delete <laughs> oh, <no>. it. <laughs> Taylor uh, Taylor Hawkins, the the drummer for Foo Fighters, said that it sounded like a fart, which <laughs> is like the funniest, most puerile way to describe music. Uh, which is why we'll be rating this album on a scale of one to six farts. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> but the the reception to this was like from critics was comically hostile. Did you get to read any of the? Uh, any of the reviews. So here was the thing that I saw in the reviews that made it really interesting to me. I generally like the first thing I'll go look at is Metacritic. What did Metacritic think of this? Because it's just a combination of all the critics and they average out the scores based on basic understandings of different scoring scales. So one to 10 versus five stars versus, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down to figure out, and this album has a Metacritic ranking of 72, which is actually pretty decent for an album that was as loved or as hated as this one was. Yeah, um, that's really odd. 72. Yep. 
That's strange. So you had a lot of people who really gave it high remarks. If the if you liked it, you gave it really high remarks, and if you hated it, you were marking it down there at about thirty to bring the average down. So that's that's what kind of can tend to frustrate me about bands like this is because and it happened you see it happen with film too. Uh, critics will just absolutely savage something. And I don't even necessarily think uh, the critics are wrong per se, mm-hmm. but I think so, I just feel like sometimes they just have an inability to acknowledge like, yeah, sure. People like this. There's some value to that. I mean, some of these critics did kind of acknowledge that, but I don't know. I always get a little frustrated when people get too snooty about this kind of stuff. Like there's, there's, there's a valid reason to critique art, mm-hmm. right? Like we don't want to just accept, Oh yeah, sure. Everything is good. Cause not everything is good. Um, but you know, I think, and I've been guilty of this in my life, you know, I can look at a pop group or a single and just, you know, turn my nose up at it and get real frustrated. But there's some value in like empty calories, you know? Well, and it goes back to something my mom always used to say, and I'm sure if I uh, brought it up something along the lines of what I'm about to say, she would say it again, but don't yuck somebody's yum. The idea that, you know, if somebody else enjoys something, let them enjoy it. Don't be the person that's speaking negativity into their life. And it has taken me a lot of years to get to a point where, you know what? I don't personally like whatever it is, but if you love Coldplay, if you love this album, then that's great. You know what? It's, it's, it's a good album, like whatever. Yeah. That's a, a, a crucial thought technology in marriage. Cause I, <laughs> I, <laughs> yes, it is. you're, you're laughing because you know, from experience, I have done that to my dear, sweet wife. She'll be real excited about a song and I'll be like, well, you know, they shouldn't yeah. follow a minor chord with a yeah. sharp. It just yeah, doesn't work. You know, no, she doesn't want me to pick it apart. She yeah. doesn't care. She's excited about this thing and she wants to share it with me. And then I crap all over it. So like, I don't know this is interesting because it makes me kind of confront like, well, like, yeah, this album isn't very great. We, we keep talking about, let's talk about what the critics said so we can kind of rebuff them and agree with them at the same time. Does that sound good? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so um, uh, John Perils I'm, I'm John Perillis. from the New York Times, who I'm pretty sure we've talked about at mm-hmm. least in our, um, in our wall episode, if not um, before that. But uh, for the New York Times, he wrote an article called The Case Against Coldplay. Um, and boy, he just his main frustration with it, I think, is that Chris Martin's lyrics are just not very good. Like, there's a lot of kind of half-baked imagery, a lot of stuff that just frankly doesn't make a lot of sense or have any, like, connective tissue with the rest of it. Um, But he called Coldplay the most insufferable band of the decade. Um Joe Tangari from Pitchfork. He in Pitchfork. I don't have you read a ton of Pitchfork yes, reviews. I love Pitchfork. Oh reviews. man, they are brutal. It's like, like if Reddit roast me was a ooh. review site. Yeah, I, I have I have heard other musicians say that getting like a six from pitchfork is like hey we did it we oh won a God. grammy <laughs> um but it, he said this album was like Coldplay's two previous albums only more so x and y is bland but never offensive listenable but not memorable um yeah and, and chris rob chris gow again from the village voice called it precise bland and banal their sensitivity, emotionless, and their musicality, never surprising. They're the definition of a pleasant bore, easy to tune out, impossible to care for. Oh, man. Like, (laughs) (laughs) 
I love Robert Christgau. His reviews yeah. are pretty brutal. Yeah, he 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 no holds barred uh, with him. Um, but yeah, all these all of these reviewers have kind of the same accusations of blandness, and I don't know. Like I get it, but also I think the music is really strong, even if the the lyrics are not very good i really like a lot of what coldplay does all of the big echoey spacey guitars i really like chris martin's voice to be honest like that was another thing uh that perils i'm john perellis had a problem with we should probably learn how to pronounce his name but um you know he kind of called it derivative and said that the music was, you know, a ripoff of U2 and Radiohead, which it is. But I don't know, I think I think musically this is kind of their strongest stuff. It's just for me what I disliked a lot was the lyrics. What was there any of this that like clanged for you? Cuz I know you said you were kind of excited about this album. Was this one that you genuinely liked or disliked or what? So, and I'll, I'll save part of this for my review in a little bit, but I will say one of the things that was going on in my life when this album came out was I was really interested in the idea of music production, not necessarily being in a band or whatever, but actually producing music. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. remember being really excited when this album came out, uh, looking forward to it. Um, I believe... I don't believe I had heard any of the singles or any of the music from this album before I got the whole album. So yeah. I'd kind of been living in a, under a rock and was really excited for this album. And I remember the first time I listened to it on my iPod being pretty disappointed in it. Um, oh, interesting. And one of the reasons that I felt disappointed in it, and it's one of the reasons that I started listening to music on as many different platforms as possible to kind of get a feeling for it uh, and consume it in as many ways as possible to, to see if there's maybe a listener bias because I'm listening to it in my, my earbuds or maybe Mm -hmm. it sounds better in my car or whatever. But this album just, no matter what I played it on just doesn't sound that great. It feels like, you know, they spent 16 months writing songs for this album, and then they spent like a week recording them and mastering them. And while I agree there's good music here and there's great big guitars and very much echoes of U2, and you hear some of uh, Pink Floyd in there with some of their kind of spacier elements and kind of experimental fun, like there's a lot of just great stuff happening there. But at the end of the day, it seems like they mixed it as a demo tape and then sent it off. I mean, you lose Chris Martin's voice. I agree he has a phenomenal voice, but you lose him in the mix on most of the songs. It's really, really muddy. There's just reverb on top of reverb on top of reverb, and it just gets so wet that it's almost impossible to tell what's what in some of these songs. And I remember when I was, you know, in 2005, I remember being disappointed by that uh, having a higher bar in my mind for what Coldplay should be uh, and it may be part of that was because in 2005 I did work for a church and I was involved in the music ministry at church and you know everybody loved Coldplay there because of the same reasons we talked about earlier and so this was one of those albums that when I look at you know, Robert Chris Gow's uh, review, or when I read uh, the Pitchfork review for it, I kind of connected with it, and it brought some of those feelings back before I'd even listened to this album. Uh, <laughs> I made a mistake of looking at reviews beforehand. I was like, oh, oh yeah, I remember, no. I remember this being a problem. <laughs> and when I listened to it, it's just, it's the same. Um, there is a remastered version of this album available that I feel like is an improvement in a lot of ways. Really? Um, You're going to have to send me a a link to that because I would, I would be very interested in like comparing them side by side. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't, I don't think I can listen to it as objectively as I would like to. 
Well, and I wouldn't know. say I'll I'll be honest. All of those things that I just said, it's hard for me to listen to it objectively. Right, right. But I feel like when I listen to it, his voice comes through a little bit clearer. It's not quite as effect laden to the point of being muddy. Um, it's just a little bit cleaner. Um, but yeah, I I enjoy this album. I'm not gonna lie. Your your comment about it being dessert. Uh, I'm a sweets person. I thought it was good, yeah. and I enjoy this album. It's not a great album, but it's fun. No, it, it's and that was the thing that was kind of funny to me as as I was listening to it. The lyrics to this song to this album are terrible. Like, I'm had, not even going to stand for them. It, no, they they are utter trash they're just complete garbage they make no sense this should have been an instrumental um, album and it would have been perfect i couldn't complain about a muddy mix or, if i couldn't hear his voice at all <laughs> <laughs> or you know um be more interesting if you're going to be incoherent like uh one of the bands of give kind me some of, joe walsh go for it <laughs> yeah <laughs> well or even like um so u2's earlier stuff or not u2 excuse me um REM. I don't mm-hmm. know how much REM you've listened mm-hmm. to, um, but kind of one of the criticisms of them is once Michael Stipe started wanting his voice higher up in the mix is when things started to go downhill because his lyrics make no sense, but they're interesting. They're kind of nonsense, but the imagery and stuff that is in them is fun, but here it's, it's all the same. Like, I'm sure you noticed there's a lot of themes of like brokenness and like Mm -hmm. chasing after somebody and wanting to fix things and chasing your dreams, but it doesn't, none of it's connected. It's just word salad. Well, and without being disparaging, one of the things that kind of popped in my mind uh, when I was listening to this album for the lyrical content and reading the lyrics as I was going along and, like an English professor going, that doesn't make sense. That's a fragment. That doesn't work. (laughs) It reminded me of um, Bob Dylan in the 60s trying to just write music uh, while sober. The mouse with the overbite explained how the rabbit... What the hell is this song about? I have no idea. You guys are idiots. This song is very deep. Like, Ooh. that's what Chris Martin comes Ouch. across as here is just, all right. Ceasefire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not. And I don't know, like, what doesn't make any sense to me is that he has a decent lyrical gear in him. The mm-hmm. song Yellow was, if I remember correctly, it was written for his mom mm-hmm. who was dealing with breast cancer. Yep. Um. You know, and and I think I wish I had sat down and looked at more of the lyrics from Parachutes because Parachutes is full of stuff that is either pretty good lyrics or at least interesting. Um, One of the things that the one of the articles that I read pointed out, I think I'm pretty sure it was the New York Times article pointed out is that. He shifts from talking about I, using the word I a lot in his first two albums, to you. This kind of weird second person thing, which works if you're like telling a story. Because, you know, we heard some of that from Brandon Flowers. Mm -hmm. But but I think it's kind of weirdly impersonal to be constantly singing about you and to also just not... I don't know, not really tie any of those ideas up with a narrative for it yeah. to just be kind of weird, wishy-washy addressing the listener and not having anything concrete to say about your own feelings. Yeah. Kind of just left me feeling flat, you know? It just didn't make any sense. Yeah. No, I agree. And uh, I, I don't dislike Chris Martin or his lyrical abilities. I want to be clear about that. I think he yeah. does. He yeah. is a good lyricist when he wants just, to be, I just feel like just he found this, this album. In. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. That I think time and time again in my notes, I just wrote like, what is he talking about? I don't get it. This I, is stupid. <laughs> I'm not on enough drugs to get the message here. 
Well, and he even said, uh, I didn't have this quote written down anywhere, but he even kind of addressed it and said, this is the kind of music that you want to listen to if your girlfriend just broke up with you or if your boyfriend just broke up with you. This is, uh, thinking about it today as I was driving around to and from work, this is the ice cream that the sitcom girl eats as she cries on the couch. And for guys, this is like the beer with the guys and the strip club after your girlfriend breaks up with you or whatever. It's, it's the trash you consume that emotionates resonantly but doesn't have a lot of meaning. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. It's a lot of like emotional catharsis. It's filler. Yeah, exactly. It, it makes you feel good, but it has no, it's just completely empty calories. Yeah, well, I agree. And before we talk about our reviews, I want to take like two seconds and recognize a band, uh, the better version of Coldplay, as my wife refers to them. Uh, Chris Martin, in many interviews over the years, has admitted that one of his primary influences uh, for Coldplay is another British pop rock band named Travis. I don't know if you've huh. ever heard of Travis or listened to them, but no, they I need to check them out. They are really good. Uh, they've released ten studio albums since I think nineteen ninety one, ninety two, something like that. They've toured. They've had a couple of good hits. And I will be honest, you can listen to their music and you can listen to Coldplay and you can tell that Chris Martin is clearly drawing a lot of inspiration from them. They're a lot more acoustically driven, though. So you don't have as big as soundscapes, but you've got a lot of the same meter to the music and a lot of the same feeling. It's, it's really good music. So I highly recommend you check them out. I'll have to check him out. I honestly thought you were going to say Radiohead. No. Because I, I, I had this conversation with uh, a good friend of mine here in Lubbock who's in a band called Phantom Wilds up here. And he pointed out, you know, Radiohead released their, al their album The Bends in 1995. And he kind of posited that Coldplay was just that record done poorly over and over again and <laughs> that's harsh <laughs> I, it is harsh but have i'm i've been kind of trying to dig into radiohead a little bit more mm -hmm. and i can say he's kind of right like radiohead was doing the jangly acoustic moody vocals uh, warbly echoey guitar stuff uh for a few years before coldplay jumped on that bandwagon. Now I think Coldplay has taken elements of that sound and created a thing that probably is more quote unquote accessible. Well, and it's but, more them. They've made it their own thing, even though they yeah. may have been inspired by it. And I will say this, the reason that I kind of like Travis is they're still, they're still together these days uh, in 2021. They play really small shows. They've been together pretty much forever, you know, 30 years or so now. And, um, they were, they were playing small shows when Chris Martin was a young man and they were, they were out there, you know, living 20, 30 miles away from where Chris Martin was living. And so it's kind of cool to see that that sound isn't unique just to Coldplay, but it was more of a, a British sound of the nineties yeah. and early two thousands. So I, I I really think you should check them out. Yeah, I'll check them out. I can check them out and give you a little a little uh, five second review of them because I I'm interested. That's it's a sound that I've always liked, so nice. I'll have to give it a shot. Well, cool, man. Well, I think we've talked about the album uh, enough. What do you think about jumping into our reviews? Yeah, so just as a reminder for everybody, we rate these albums on a scale of one to six strings on a guitar. So a one-string guitar being the worst album ever, a six-string guitar being the greatest record that either of us have ever heard. Um, so you want to you wanna tell me how you felt about it? 
You know, I remember having this album on my original 16 gigabyte iPod. May its click wheel rest in peace. It was a sad (laughs) day. I remember being disappointed when it came out. Their original albums were so interesting and fun for me. And this album, while it still sounds like Coldplay, sounds like they're playing more of a caricature of themselves than actually being themselves. Uh, kind of to echo the reviews above of, you know, it's Coldplay, but more. They've basically just turned the knob up to 11 on this and hoped that it would stick. And it's proof that you can have a critically well-received album and a commercial success without having necessarily the greatest content, Uh, especially when you compare it to earlier Coldplay albums. I'm really glad that they grew from that and that they learned their lesson from this album and that this wasn't the album that kind of sent them into a tailspin. They stayed together and they were able to make other music that on track by track basis is fun. Uh, and I really, I really want to love this album. I'll be honest that it has all the right pieces in place, but it's forgettable and it doesn't really connect with me emotionally. And I think the mix sounds unfinished. I think it's muddy, and I wish that they had spent a little bit more time dialing in the experience for the end user. Um, This may actually be a pretty accurate representation, though, of what it sounds like to go listen to them in concert, uh, more than being a clean, clear studio album. Uh, But that mix thing, it makes me want to take a string away from it. And so... I would have given this four strings and said, this is great. Uh, I enjoyed it, but it's really a three out of six string album for me. Uh, all the pieces are there. It just isn't together. How about you, Chris? what do you think? So I actually gave it the same exact rating, three out of six strings. Um, this album to me felt a lot like the way I felt about Star Wars lately where there are strong stories told in that world, but there are also some real duds. And it's also, this album, I think, has spawned a lot of really lesser imitators. Um, And this album also just has flaws in its own right. Um, The thing that I kept trying to crack and just couldn't, was the lyrics. The lyrics are just so, so bad. Um, And the more I looked at them, the less I saw. Um, You know, it's kind of like in um, Westworld Mm -hmm. when the, uh, the androids or AI or whatever they are, when they are looking at something that they're programmed not to see, they say, that doesn't mean anything to me or I don't see anything or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's kind of how I felt about this. It was fun. The music was fun, but uh, yeah, I couldn't give it more. I, I, I said 3.5 out of six strings, but I think that you can't have half a string. So it's gotta just be three strings. I don't know if like this guitar is halfway through being restrung or (laughs) if it's just like, sitting in a case under somebody's bed, but three out of six strings is what I've got to give this album. Yeah, I think that's fair, man. So uh, did you have a favorite and least favorite track on this album? So I did. I actually, uh, you know, we've harped on and on about the lyrics, but there is one track on this album that I felt like had some interesting meaning. Um, And it's the song Twisted Logic. Uh, I think Chris Martin is kind of addressing technology and its negative influence on, on us. You know, um, he says, if somebody made it, someone will mess it up. And that kind of idea of technology being our doom is echoed throughout it. And the music is probably the best music to me on this album. The chord progression is really interesting. It's not your standard, you know, the same three chords and a super simple melody. It's really grandiose mm-hmm. and goes places. So I would have to say Twisted Logic is my favorite track. Did you have a favorite track off this album or were they just all so bad you couldn't pick one? 
No, I actually do have a favorite track. Um, and it's because the lyrics actually meant something to me, and I thought the music was beautiful for it. Um, it's one of those tracks that... It's the only track that I felt like I had an emotional co- connection with, and that's yeah. the last track on this album, which is Till Kingdom Come. Oh, um, so good. I just, I love the imagery that he does paint with that album, and it's it's a reminder of how good Chris Martin could be if he applied himself to the lyrics of this music. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just feels, if it hits me right in the feels. So I really love that track. Do you know the story behind that track? I do not. So Chris Martin wrote that track um, kind of in the hopes that Johnny Cash would sing it. You know, he was doing a lot of work with other artists and Mm -hmm. songwriters. He had that album of covers. He does Soundgarden's Rusty Cage. Yep. Um, But Johnny Cash passed away before he could kind of get that song to him. Uh, and another, like a personal connection I have with that song. Um, one of our mutual friends, Paul asked me to play this song at his wedding. And that was the first time that my then future wife, Megan saw me perform music. Yeah. And she has told me that she saw me and thought like, boy, he looks a lot older than the rest of the guys up there in the bridal party. Because uh, for the listeners uh, who have zero visual cues to go off of, I look a lot older than I am. I'm only 31, but I kind of look like mid-40s. And when I was in my 20s, I looked like I was in my 30s. So I remember being in youth group with you and you being prematurely graying in yes, youth group. Yes. So. Uh, he is not telling a lie about looking older than everybody else. <laughs> He's definitely the friend who could do things before everybody else because he looked like he didn't need to pull his ID out. <laughs> I had I had a teacher at a parent-teacher conference who, she was an English teacher. She was a lot of fun. She was so much fun. But they had like um, one of those meet and greet things with the parents and she joked to my parents that she wondered how many times I had taken freshman English <laughs> when I walked into the room because I have always just looked older. Well, with that kind of said, what was your least favorite track on this album? Oh, man. My least favorite track was Swallowed in the Sea. The chorus doesn't make any sense. And the music is like, it's just self it's self parody. Um, I think some of the, I think you mentioned it in your review and some of the reviewers mentioned it. This band dips into self parody in the same way that bands like U two or like even Bruce Springsteen kind of do. So I, that was the track for me. I'm pretty sure I skipped it. I was like, okay, I, I know the song I've heard a million times. What about you? Uh, it's definitely swallowed by the sea. Like we're unanimous Ooh, on that. We got a it's, twofer, man. Same me, rating and same worthless song. So to me, to finish that thought out, this sounds like the kind of original music a high school Coldplay cover band would write for a dance. Yeah, this is it's a this, worthless song. Oh, it really is. I think this this is the kind of song that like you definitely hear in a coffee shop and go like, oh brother. Well, I think maybe this is the single song that sunk this ship. I mean, maybe that's yeah, it. <laughs> this, this album did get swallowed by the sea so. because of this bad, bad song. Well, hey, man, I think we've just about wrapped up uh, X and Y by Coldplay. I've had a great time with this conversation, and all that's left is to figure out what we're listening to next week. You ready to find out? Yeah, and before you spin the wheel, I just want to remind listeners, in case they forgot, this is a podcast about our favorite albums, believe it or not. (laughs) I feel like we really did just kind of savage X and Y. But I like Coldplay, and I like this album. It's just not any good. Hey, you know, we can be honest with ourselves. Sometimes you got to like those empty calories, like you said earlier. Absolutely. Why don't you uh, give me the fairy godmother chimes and let me know what we're going to do next. Tiffany called it the great Oracle in the cloud this week. So I like it. So let me consult the great Oracle in the cloud and find out what we're listening to next week. 
number 12, which is on Wood and Chris's list, both the Foo Fighters, Echoes of Silence and Patience, 2007, man. Yes, you mean Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace. Yes, I meant to say that, but, you know, it got cut off. Yeah, the uh, cell in the the Excel spreadsheet uh, betrayed you. Totally, but, man, I am excited for this. This is one that, this is the only album that was on both of our lists. So, it'll be fun to talk about. Yeah, this will be good. Looking forward to it. All right, man. Well, with that said, I'm going to roll the music. I hope you have a good week, and we will see you next time. See you guys.